What's up, everybody? So I want to let you know that the Alpha Brain Golden Ticket Sweepstakes are still going on. And that's just a rad opportunity not only to stock up on your Alpha Brain or give Alpha Brain a try. Because if you haven't tried Alpha Brain, it's definitely one of those tools that's different than any stimulant you've had and gets your brain firing in an absolutely different way. And that's what our clinical research has shown, and that's what everybody who's tried it. You know, we've sold over a million bottles of Alpha Brain, and the results are in. It works. It's awesome. So this is a great opportunity, though, because if you get the Golden Ticket Sweepstakes, everybody is a winner, and there's a bunch of cool shit that we're giving away, from kettlebell sets to different other products, to discounts. Every single person is going to be a winner if you go to the golden ticket sweepstakes so check it out on it.com slash golden ticket and then enter the code and fill in the entry form there's going to be a grand prize for one of you which is going to be a trip out here to austin and on hq so you'll be able to come hang at the hq and do all the awesome on it things so definitely check it out go to on it.com slash golden dash ticket and get your 30 count or 90 count bottle of alpha brain if you're listening to this episode on the day it comes out it's 420 and that has special significance for an episode about psychedelics with Michael Pollan. But it also means that on 422, on it launches the semi-annual sale. This is where we discount everything as much as we do at any point in the year other than the Black Friday sale. This is the second opportunity to stock up on all the gear, all the stuff, all the supplements, 25% off supplements. We have gear and accessories and everything up to 60% off. It's really worth checking out go to onit.com slash aubrey the sale is live 422 through 429 and then also we have the design your life event coming up in austin with gary v that starts may 2nd and that event is going to have me and gary v and nq on stage at paramount and we're going to be figuring some stuff out we're going to be talking about what's important whether that's your business whether that's your entrepreneurial journey or whether that's just finding something that makes you happy. When I talked to Gary recently, he talks about how work is a hobby for him, how much he enjoys the process, the game, the strategy, all of it. We're going to talk about that and also the strategy that I've employed to enjoy my life the most. And of course, I've had my ups and downs as we all do. And that's what we'll be sharing on stage, the lessons learned from putting ourselves in these challenging positions and asking the most of ourselves. And then on 5-3, we got a couple of my favorite people as well. We have David Rutherford, the Navy SEAL. We have Emily Fletcher, one of the top meditation teachers. So please check out this event in Austin coming up May 2nd and May 3rd. That's onit.com slash design your life. Michael Pollan is a multiple New York Times bestselling author, but probably the most important book, in my opinion, that he's ever written is How to Change Your Mind. This takes you from a complete novice about psychedelics, not really understanding where the movement came from, its roots, back from the early days all the way to the present and the scientific research that's available now, as well as Michael's own experiential journey through psychedelic medicine. It was such an honor to sit down with him and record this podcast. I think you guys are going to love it. Welcome, man. Hey, thank you, Aubrey. Good to be here. Yeah, good to have you here. I mean, you've written one of the most significant books in a field that I've been highly interested in, been talking about for a long time. And I, before we even start this, just want to share my gratitude to you for you know, pushing the knowledge base of the subject of psychedelics in a way that was both tender, delicate, scientific, and something that we could all give to our parents <laughs> in a certain way, you know? And, and it becomes ultimately palatable. And I think that's where 
this psychedelic revolution that we're experiencing is so different from the other one because right now we have not only the science but we have the temperance to really make this thing last and and be significant so i just want to recognize your parents your parents know what psychedelics are now and and many of them have experience (laughs) yeah that changes things too i mean the environment in the 60s when psychedelics first came to public attention was that it was a rite of passage uh, created by young people that older people didn't know anything about and were very threatened by. And you know, normally rites of passage in any society are uh, kind of hurdles that are set up by the old. You know, whether you're talking about bar mitzvah or a vision quest, and the young pass over these hurdles and and join adult society. Here was this freaky um rite of passage and an lsd trip was a rite of passage that um put you in a place where you were further from the adult world than mm-hmm. rather than closer and i think that i think that that really you know we we talked a lot about the generation gap then and i think that lsd drove that gap and uh and that was one of the reasons that the culture turned against it i think rites of passage are one of the fundamental missing pieces in western culture right those things that are hard enough that you actually get to learn something about yourself and and yeah and they're transformative exactly you pass from one state into another and it's definitely i mean i've talked now to so many people who've had really kind of you know big high dose psychedelic trips and they are rites of passage uh Mm -hmm. they're they're conversion stories for the most part i was this way and then i became this way and in the you know the studies in Johns Hopkins have confirmed that you know top five life experience studies yeah. and really kind of qualitative studies about what the experience is like, which is nice to be able to look at that and say like no 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 it's not just me yeah you know it's, right. it, this is actually in in the research now and that's out there. But I think in the absence of these genuine rites of passage, there we look for it in other ways, and we may never find it. You know, I mean, so there's the married and having a kid's rite of passage right. and because the other ones are hollow even bar mitzvahs and bat right. mitzvahs and yeah. you know quinceañeras i mean they've become kind of hallmarked mm-hmm. to the most degree and, and these things they lost they lost some of the the deep fabrics that might have come from the roots but this is something that still exists it isn't particularly being used in that way because i don't think we've had the legal framework to be able to no yeah and that's that's going to be an interesting challenge of how you how you make it available to people who aren't necessarily mentally ill right or struggling with that and um but you're right i mean it has that potential and uh and i think it's one of the reasons so many people are drawn to it right now that Mm -hmm. they are looking for that kind of rite of passage and they have something they want to change in their lives i mean they, they may be healthy but they may not like something about the way they think they may think that they're uh, trapped in destructive habits of thought addiction that's just I mean, human right yeah. like we're all trapped i'm still trapped everybody's still trapped to some degree and, like we and all as have you get older you know it gets worse i mean the, the grooves of thought get deeper and deeper every time you think those thoughts you know and um and so as that's one of the surprises for me we so associate psychedelics with being young i say at some point in the book somewhat flip flippantly that uh psychedelics may be wasted on the young Mm -hmm. uh that it's really only after you have a lot of life experience and you have been captured by your daily habits your mental habits whatever it is your the the ruts that you're in that they're truly um revolutionary because they can get you out of that yeah the value of the pattern interrupt increases as the patterns become more solidified definitely makes well, they sense. just get deeper and deeper and then you look at some of the research being done by hafter and usona on the end of life palliative care mm-hmm. which is people at the very end of their life 
and the significance of the of those studies a single dose of psilocybin showing these massive reductions in depression and end-of-life anxiety and you know that kind of proves the case there that well yeah it, it i mean i talked to people who had cancer and were terrified paralyzed by their fear and they their fear was not just reduced eliminated and that was uh, really striking i think the value is not just for cancer patients i think we i mean this should be um we should be looking at people who with diagnosis of parkinson's and als and uh alzheimer's that anyone undergoing that kind of uh, life-changing diagnosis uh, that that creates a spiritual crisis uh, and a psychological crisis that this this might have value and and I hope we'll continue to do that. I, I, I'm I'm somewhat concerned that the research is is sort of narrowing down to depression. Everybody's mm-hmm. working on depression, and depression is very important. Um, but you know we've got nothing to offer people with a with a terminal diagnosis. That's also that's also very true. I, I think it's interesting though that i think one of the reasons why the research is narrowing down is that's part of the game that gets the medicine over the line right this is playing chess in a in a responsible way to move the queen to the other side of the the pawn to the other side of the board to make it a queen to make it legal and then at that point you can open up expanded use that's true and the expanded use and also you know as is happening with ketamine off label you know sure. doctors can prescribe it uh once it's approved that's true although you could argue that going for depression makes sense in that it's such a large problem and 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 the FDA encouraged them to go that way. On the other hand, it may not work. Um, I think that the kind of depression it's been shown effective for, which is the depression that follows a cancer diagnosis, which is a very specific kind of depression, right? Not based on any kind of... Um, uh, neurochemical problem, obviously. It's mm. based on an existential crisis. Um, so is that representative of depression in general? It may not be. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we'll see. We'll see what the results are like. Um, but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be as sure that they're going to be good as they've been with either uh, people with terminal diagnosis or, or people with addictions. I yeah. think that's also really promising work. I think the, you know, the way this will go, and I, and I, I agree that's a good insight, um, but I think the way it'll go is you just, you push a wave and maybe this first wave with depression you know crests and we get to legalization that way but if it doesn't there's yeah. there are other there, there are other, other waves that yeah. will follow behind and you know get funded and i think the awareness is coming and we'll probably enter you know some kind of strange period when you know when marijuana was only medically legal in a lot of places you'd have to go to a doctor and they'd be like do you ever have trouble not sleeping yeah. and you'd be like <laughs> yes sometimes i don't sleep well and they're like great here's your here's You're your prescription here's your letter. You know? and i think ultimately when these medicines are legal there's going to be some of that situation because the truth of the matter is we're all fucking terrified of dying yeah we're all terrified of dying it's a spiritual crisis that we all have and just some manage it in a way that they can be functional terrified of dying people and some manage it in a way that they can't be (laughs) you know but we're all so scared you know? Yeah, no, I mean, the betterment of well people is a phrase that uh, Bob Jesse used, one of the sources in my book, yeah. who, who's really driven this renaissance uh, behind the scenes. And he was saying, if we just medicalize this, we're missing a lot of people who could benefit, who are not clinically depressed or clinically anxious. And he said, we have to pay attention to, to the betterment of well people. And, and I think he's right. I, I, we just don't have a structure. I mean, we have, two, we have two structures for administering psychedelics in the world that are legal and acceptable. One is medical, 
and the other is religious spiritual mm -hmm. right you have the ayahuasca churches and you have the native american church and they have a constitutional right to use these drugs so that, that that's two very important paths but then there's this other path that doesn't exist yet and and needs to exist i think uh, which is to say uh, finding a safe and responsible way to administer uh psychedelics to people who are on you know a, a quest of self-exploration say sure. or are garden variety unhappy i mean lots of people get psychotherapy who aren't mentally ill right i mean yeah. it, they have problems they have trouble in their relationship and all those people i think assuming that we prove the safety and efficacy of, of uh, psilocybin therapy should have access as well. But how do you design that container? I, I don't think the cannabis example is right. Uh, I, I just think the drugs are too powerful to just kind sure. of uh, let everybody have them, have at it. Um, but I'm not sure exactly how you go about it. Well, the traditional models of like the ayahuasca shamans, you know, they, that was the best attempt or the, you know, the Chavin people in Peru who mm -hmm. used to serve Wachuma, you know, in a ceremonial sense where they were the doctors of that medicine right. at the time and they administered it in some sensible sense. I mean, I think that's the closest model we have, but it just doesn't line that's up not with the legal. Appropriate. It doesn't line yeah. up with the legal framework that we no. have. So no. that's not going to work. So it's going to be an interesting question because the truth of the matter is, in my experience with psychedelics, I was fortunate enough to go sit with a traditional shaman at 18 and take psilocybin in the mountains. And that was the first time I actually became aware of my own insanity, right? Like, uh -huh. And slowly this thing is like, I wouldn't have been diagnosed with it, but I could diagnose myself, my own delusions, my own insecurities, my own needs for validation, my own fears, my own terror of, of dying. Mm -hmm. All of these things became aware through these things like people think it's this mind-altering thing that actually makes you go insane but it actually makes you so no, sane you realize the your insanity. own mind that yeah, it makes you so sane you realize the insanity of your own normal life <laughs> like or it's the, the opposite yeah. or the world yeah. right it's like it's a sanity it's a it's a sanity capsule in a certain way it can be it's not always and you can't generalize anything because it is an it is an open ended experience. It's a which is what's really interesting people. about it. I mean, if you think about the phenomenology of other drugs, of cocaine or opiates, it's pretty consistent across sure. populations. But everybody's uh, psychedelic trip is different, and you may find some you know big archetypes that are similar. But um, and the reason is that it, what it is doing is opening up your own mind to itself, and opening up your mind to the larger world and how you perceive that is going to be different than the next person yeah. and um you know uh stanislav graf said they're they're unspecific mental amplifiers um it's not a lovely phrase but um but he's kind of right and that um and you know set and setting too that idea that that leary popularized uh that it that what happens will be very much the product of both your interior and exterior landscape right at that moment and so on any two days even you know one of us would could have a completely different trip it could be ecstatic and beautiful or absolutely horrifying on the same dose of the same molecule that, mm -hmm. how how weird is that even with the same diet even with yeah. all the same you could try to control as many variables as you want but there's uncontrolled variables in yeah. the experience that will ultimately come out because you're not the, you're never the same person that's right especially if you're on the psychedelic path right you're in a in a process of transformation right of some sort we all are in a process of growth and transformation we wake up a different person than we went to sleep you yeah. know the night before subtly and that's i true. think amplifying you know as groff said amplifying all of these things it just 
shows you the differences and shows you what you've been learning what you haven't been learning right. and and so you know and in a way that's as, as it should be yeah it is but it also introduces an element of unpredictability no doubt. that um argues i think i mean look the lesson of traditional uses of psychedelics from the amazon from siberia from northern mexico you know i mean when when we discovered psychedelics they kind of burst into the west and they came without an instruction manual right <laughs> and so a lot of people didn't know how to handle them used them badly people did really careless things dosing strangers you know the grateful dead would dose anyone who came into their green room i mean that's like cruel people still do careless things yeah they do even now and, and but the stakes are high in, yeah. in the case of psychedelics but the lessons from all traditional cultures is there's always an elder someone who knows the territory who's there to supervise it, there's a the intention is 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 really thought about you you don't do it recklessly you do it with intention um and and you talk about it you know there's yeah. a kind of integration of one kind or another uh after and there's and there's ceremony around it too there's a sense of the the momentousness of this journey you're going on and so our challenge is to take those principles from traditional shamanic cultures and come up with a modern you know 2019 version in our society of what what well who would be the elder what what, what would qualify someone as an elder what would be an appropriate ceremony mm -hmm. and and that it's very exciting work but it remains to be done you know yeah. creating that cultural container but i think it's really important and um uh and i have little doubt that it will happen i mean i think it will i think it's ultimately you know has to lend it to itself to some kind of blend of all of the things that we've discussed yeah. like a blend of going to see your doctor right a blend of going to church a blend of going to a traditional ceremony in a maloka you right. know a blend of all of these things that will ultimately with the medical component with the traditional component and with you know all of the all of the components that exist will ultimately like we'll have to innovate that solution because yeah, we, we won't be able to do it devoid of the medical component it's just not the system that we're yeah. in i think purely keeping it in the spiritual religious sense is also limiting to a certain degree and a lot and of I, people are just allergic to anything that you know has the word sure, spiritual in it yeah. sure and and it's also you know there has to be such a clearly established lineage which typically traces back to a certain doctrine right and you know in in my experience with psychedelics they are usually doctrine busting yeah. by their very nature they are. you know their their, their doctrine ex, you know expanding so that doesn't really work so i think that hybrid model um yeah. is yet to be developed and i think it will be developed once you know we get one of these allies over the line and then start to see and start to see how yeah. how the process will innovate yeah and you know i can easily imagine uh, mental health clubs where people go right and there's a doctor that's employed who writes the prescriptions and, and checks everybody out does the medical questionnaires and everything uh and the guides are trained but they're not you know they don't need phds or mm -hmm. graduate degrees and this is a, a beautiful place where you go and have one of these experiences and i think all that is possible uh once they do get over the line as you say yeah where do you find because you've got you got a lot of people looking at you now in this field where do you find the the most staunch resistance because pe people might think that it might come from oh the fda well fda has actually been very friendly 
to these things. And even even Republican FDA, whatever you want to yeah. call it, like it's not exactly where you think it might be coming from. But what, no, what's your experience? No, it's not breaking down left, right. I mean, yeah. you know, one of the really interesting developments in the last year is uh, Rebecca Mercer gave money to MAPS <laughs> to study um, MDMA. Um, and uh, Steve Bannon has spoken very approvingly of MDMA therapy for vets. Um, so it may not break down on a right-left basis, which is good, which is really mm -hmm. healthy. You know, I expected to find a lot more resistance when I published this book than I have. Um, there's been remarkably little resistance or pushback. I would say it's in, there are people in the psychiatry community that have trouble grokking this whole thing. Um, psychiatry has moved from being uh, you know, in the old days of psychoanalysis where, where it was criticized for being brainless, that it was all about the mind and they didn't really take account of the fact that there was a, an organ involved, to being um, totally mindless and totally obsessed with neurochemistry and nothing else. And I've had, you know, really smart psychiatrists say, well, the psychedelic part of the experience is, is irrelevant. We really just have to focus on the chemistry. Can we develop an LSD that doesn't create psychedelic experiences? Like, what <laughs> what would be the point and they, they really believe to the extent they believe it works at all is that it's working at some level of neuroplasticity or neurogeneration and maybe that's an element but it's clearly since you're only having one dose that's in your body for only six hours that it is the experience that is the transformative agent in the same way that trauma is an experience that can change your brain long term uh, it may be that you have a sort of anti-trauma uh, or some kind of quantum experience that actually changes your brain in a positive direction. Mm -hmm. Not everybody, but some people. And, um, and, and psychiatry doesn't have a space for experience anymore. It's all about chemistry. So, so people like that will say, well, what's the mechanism? And I'll start talking about, well, it's the experience of ego dissolution. And they're like, don't talk to me about ego. The ego has been written out of psychiatry. I want to hear, I want you to talk about biochemistry. You know, it's like, well, you got the wrong guy. Uh, mm -hmm. So I have heard from those people and, and those people also, and these tend to be older line psychiatrists. Psych, the psychiatrists in school right now are very excited about this. Yeah, The ones at, at every medical school that I've had any contact with, they really want to explore it. It's their elders who have trouble processing this. Well, more fixed patterns of thinking, right? Exactly right. right. Like, it's less very hard for people to give up uh, and it's a weird, you know, this is a weird paradigm if you think about it. I mean, our approach to mental illness has either been chemical or talk therapy, right? And here you really need to combine both. This is a package. It doesn't work without this therapeutic support. Mm -hmm. um, you need the integration. You need the preparation. You need the guiding. Um, but you also need the pill uh, or the mushroom. So I think that's very hard for the mental health establishment to take on board um it's going to require a new kind of thinking and a new business model by the way i mean this is yeah. how do you make money on cures uh, cures uh-oh oh, our business model depends Shit. on no cures wait 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 you just do it three times and they keep getting better over time oh man yeah this is a good one work for me <laughs> yeah and one time care? what yeah that's uh so the, there there are a lot of interesting challenges uh and it's going to be fascinating the next few years to watch how this plays out and it's going to play out pretty quickly Unless, and I and I, I, I want to introduce a cautionary note here that we have another backlash, and I I don't think it's out of the question. I, I think we have to be. I think the researchers have to be really careful, and I think those of us who speak in a positive way about this have to be very careful. But 
Um, I think actually all of us have to be careful because really all that's truly needed is some reckless use of psychedelics that yeah. can be latched on by people who are terrified of it themselves yes. like i don't i don't think there's this nefarious conspiracy against you know all psychedelics designed to keep people down and in consumerism and it's the illuminati and what, whatever no i think people are actually regulating against the stuff they're scared about yeah you know for the most part this is not some organized group in my opinion and i could be i could be wrong but i think people who are scared of psychedelics will take something take oh, sure. an example of someone who's done something and it will happen I mean, and, there will be a suicide. So I'll give you an example of what could happen. First, there's sexual uh, molestation, which is a, a real risk in this therapeutic relationship. You have uh, you have a person who really can't um, defend themselves, and you have a therapist who has a patient in a very vulnerable spot. And MDMA creates this very strong bond of trust that could be abused by an unscrupulous therapist. That's one. But right now, to do these depression studies, they're tapering people off of SSRI antidepressants. Getting off of antidepressants raises your risk of suicide dramatically. So what happens if you have someone who's preparing for their, their session, psilocybin session, getting off their antidepressant and commit suicide? That suicide will get tied to this, this therapy. Very, that's very dangerous and that could easily happen. Now, there are lots of suicides associated with SSRIs and nobody it's not a big story. All the time. Yeah. Right? Like and not just one, not just like not just like a little suicide here. Oh, like it's on people, the warning label. It's part of the warning label. Yeah. Suicide and homicide, homicide are part too. of the are that. part of the side effects of some of these drugs. <laughs> like Chantix. Like wow. chan like you're gonna you anti smoking drug. Anti smoking drug. But you might kill yourself and other people as a side effect of this. <laughs> like it's fucking awesome. Yeah, it's it's wild. And and like there is, you know, I watched the movie Prescription Thugs, which makes some interesting points. And and a mother tells a story of their daughter who went to go get on these uh psychiatric medicines, which have certainly helped a lot of people. Yeah. And I'm not, you know, a crusader against removing all psychiatric medicines. Mm -hmm. I think they play a role, just as like surgeons play a role and everything plays. They're all valuable that we have, but they also come with a cost, and they, we have to be much more wary yeah. of that. But anyways, this young woman, she was at school, got on got on these medicines, and then one day, inexplicably, without a note, lit herself on fire and killed herself, right? And they tell that story. But that story doesn't make a lot of news. Yeah, You know, that story is not something that goes around the world in a flash. No, we've processed that side effect for SSRIs. But we haven't, I mean, go back to the 60s. Remember Art Linkletter's daughter, you know, supposedly jumped out of a window and committed suicide on LSD, or that's at least what. And how he, many people say you're going to jump out of a window now? Yeah. When you talk about psychedelic from that one time. That's right. Like no, it's every, a big everybody. part of it. Like, don't, yeah, don't people think they can fly and jump off buildings all the time? Yeah. Well, there may be one or two cases, but, you know, how many millions of ingestions have there been? Exactly. Um, oh, well, look, I think in Amsterdam, the, the, it changed from mushrooms to truffles because of one incident where that's somebody right. jumped off that's a bridge right. right yeah like one thing can actually change the legislation i think we got to take a look at that like one person i mean mushrooms were legal in amsterdam for a long time and it wasn't a problem and one person we we're people we have a lot of stuff going on this well, is our gonna, this our evaluation of risk is is very uh irrational i mean we yeah. know we overvalue tiny risks and undervalue big risks and i mean more people are afraid of flying than driving right i mean you know and you're much safer in an airplane 
yeah. than you are in a car. But but our well, if they took some psychedelics, they could release their need for control, <laughs> Michael. You know, they could travel without a vehicle. <laughs> exactly, they could start flying for reals, and then getting on an airplane just seems banal, superfluous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, I think we all have to be very mindful. This is the time where we should all be most mindful, and it's it's a it's a challenging position for someone like myself who's dramatically benefited from the utilization of psychedelic medicine i tra- i usually do it in a traditional sense i always go down to peru mm-hmm. never done ayahuasca in the states i've always traveled to the home you know paid mama grandmama a visit whatever you want to call that medicine mm-hmm. and and paid it a house call and that's you know the way that i feel the most comfortable in that space but you know i wouldn't be who i am without it but nonetheless how now, do you think it changed you well i had a lot of ideas about who i was mm-hmm. and who i was supposed to be and this actually showed me who i is and mm-hmm. who i be uh-huh. you know and to ruin your grammar uh, yeah exactly <laughs> exactly you can't even talk about it anymore really it's like is be i don't know it's it's, it's just beyond our language it, beyond, yeah. it is beyond our, it's the ineffable you know yeah. and it becomes hard to describe and that illumination of the truth of who i am you know has been facilitated and in a, in a taste like i was a staunch atheist I mean, I was as staunch. I would, I would go through the airports. Well, because let me tell you, I'll give you the quick backstory. Staunch okay, atheist. So I moved from California to Texas, and then I got started getting invited on ski trips by my new friends. Well, the ski trips really Bible study ski trips. So I would get <laughs> hijacked into these long all night Bible studies. I'm like, I came here to ski. Like I'm not religious. Like that was my first exposure. Second exposure, we went. Is this to, an you know, occupational hazard living in Texas? It, it, it can it can happen. Yeah, you got to be careful. Someone listen for people out there who are young listen to this podcast. I don't know if you should. I think it's explicit. But anyways, if you get invited to a ski trip, just ask if it's a Bible study okay. ski trip because <laughs> that may that may be slipped under the radar there. So that was my first thing, and I would just ask questions, and they would say, "Well, there's been people living for tens of thousands of years prior to the arrival of Christ. Are they all in hell?" And they'd be like, "Hmm." yeah i was like oh that doesn't make a lot of sense to me and they'd be like next question i was like (laughs) okay can i go now can i like go back into my room but so there was i saw some i saw some internal flaws and i I did it never made sense to me but i had no spiritual connection at all because my family was just they just like many people discarded religion based on you know logical issues and problems like the same logical problems i saw but then all right I took it another step further. This exacerbated it. I went to Italy and I went to the dungeons of the Inquisition and I saw the most horrifying things my young mind had ever seen. You know, and all done in the name of all done in the name of religion. And I was like, okay. And then I started dating some girls mm-hmm. and I saw the horrible shame and guilt from their sexual desires and the pain mm-hmm. they would go through and the tears and how bad they would feel from not only not just with me but with another person just weeping and crying because of the sin of the expression of their sexuality i'm like this is ridiculous like how are we going to deny one of the most natural impulses in the human being and think that we're going to burn eternally in hell for that so i would i would literally read christopher hitchens god is not great yellow cover book and i would just like read it around like come on anybody want some like i was i was hot and then i did that psilocybin journey I did that psilocybin journey and I felt something that I didn't even have a word for, my consciousness, my spirit, whatever you want to call that, like move out of my body. My body evaporated into nothing and this thing that felt eternal 
this sense of awareness, this consciousness that was never born and could never die. I felt that connected to all things. And I go, oh, shit. God, <laughs> like, they were onto something. There, there's something there. <laughs> there's really something else there that I'm missing. So you can't just discard religion and discard all spirituality. Right. And, and so that started me on the path of discovering the multifacets of what the human being is, which actually circles back to another thing. You know, spirit is another thing that's been completely removed from the scientific and medical yeah. doctrine, right? As just as you said, and they've gone even a step further, removing the mind. Yeah. But you also have to look at that other thing, awareness, consciousness, spirit. You, the language gets very touchy. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I mean, the research, there are researchers who speak about spirit, like Roland Griffith at, uh, at Johns Hopkins. And in fact, he got into this work because he had had a powerful spiritual experience, mystical yeah. experience himself, which he's never really defined, uh, but in his uh, meditation practice. And um, the first experiment that really gets this Renaissance going, it was not for therapeutic purposes. It was to see if you could occasion a mystical experience in a healthy, normal person. And it turns out in two-thirds of the cases you could, which was quite... So suddenly science scientists are studying the spiritual experience. And that freaks out a lot of scientists. Yeah. Um, and I, I've really noticed... I, I in, in the book, I, I profiled the work at Hopkins closely and also at Imperial College in England, where Robin Carhart-Harris and David Nutt are leading a, a really exciting um, uh, research operation. They will not use the word mystical experience. They just and they claim they don't see it and they they don't get it on their reports and okay. that 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 speaks to two things. One is the kind of experience you have on psychedelics will be influenced by the person who gave it to you. Yeah. So if you get that if you get it from Roland Griffith, you're more likely to have a spiritual experience than if you get it from Robin Carhart Harris. I actually think it's the same experience with different words attached mm. because what they do get in England is ego dissolution and they're comfortable with that psychodynamic vocabulary and i think that is what a, a mystical experience what's is. there when the ego dissolves well yes that there's anything <laughs> hey, at all yeah hey what's there <laughs> what do you call that anybody left uh, anybody <laughs> anybody home is it just blackness that's the big takeaway i mean for yeah. me that was the one time that i had an experience of complete ego dissolution was like wait a minute i'm experiencing this ego dissolution from what perspective this new perspective opened up that was um it sounds a lot like what you were talking about it, it, it was a it was a perspective that was completely untroubled that wasn't just mine it was a shared kind of neutral perspective and that that there was life after the death of the ego and that was that was big news big uh, news and impossible to try and talk to somebody about and yeah. have them really understand that yeah like it's like hey tell me about it i had to write a book about uh, yeah it. right like <laughs> like okay okay you're gonna experience this thing and it's beyond the mind it's beyond it like you can't unless you've you felt you have it to be there yeah you have, and that and that's i think one of the real values of this is once it once you taste it and you feel it you can find it in other ways. You can find meditation, it in, for in meditation, for yeah. example. You can find it in a float tank. You can find it in a sound healing. You can find it in nature. You can yeah. find it in other places because you know it's kind of like builds you the map and then right. you can find your way back. That's right. Oh, that basically, place. you've created a neural circuit yeah. that leads to that place. And if you exercise it, it gets stronger. And, and meditation is one way to exercise it. Um, but any experience, powerful experience of awe, I think, which you can get in nature too. You can get, you know, in physical activity, you know, I mean, 
I'm sure you can get it through starvation, although I'm not, I don't like to try that. Um, well, the, that was <laughs> like a big part eat. of the old spiritual yes. traditions. Oh, yeah. Long Put yourself in that place. Before yeah. you would go into, and Huxley talks about that in uh, yeah. Doors of Perception. Yeah, there's a whole lot of uh, ways to kind of, and breathing exercises too, uh, self-flagellation. Pain the, will do yeah. it too. And, or the sun dance, right? right. You're hooking That's trees right. to your chest and dancing ecstatically, dehydrated, yeah. and the pain and the rhythm and the trance. And you can find it a and lot rhythm, of ways. Rhythm will do it too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's probably a similar thing going on in the brain. I mean, you know, to reduce it to, it's probably the default mode network going offline, something like that, 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 that suppresses the sense of a self. So many psychiatrists just got more comfortable yeah, I know. by you saying default <laughs> mode network. They're like, oh, okay, okay, okay. I don't have to shut this podcast off That's yet. That's right. right. Yeah. So, I mean, but, but, it, but there are, there are many doors to that place. And psychedelics, I think is, I hate to use the word easy because it can be a very challenging experience, but it's a shortcut. No doubt. And and it's no accident that, you know, so many American Buddhists, the, the people who really brought Buddhism to America in the 70s and 80s started on psychedelics. Um, uh, Joan Halifax and uh, um, uh, uh, names are escaping me right now. I'm sorry. Um, Jack Kornfeld. I mean, I've talked, I've interviewed these people mm -hmm. and, and it was a big part of their life, and, but they wanted to figure out how can I turn this into a practice? Because psychedelics are not a practice. You can go to Peru once a year or something like that, but you can't do it every day. It's yeah. really you not should. a good idea. No. And I, I, it would lose its effectiveness too. Yeah. Um, but so how do you turn it into a practice? Well, they realized well, looking at either the Buddhist or Hindu traditions, that was the way to do it. And they found, I think, and I certainly found in my experience that I was a better meditator as a result of having had this experience because I knew the territory. I yeah. knew where I was trying to go. And people who meditate are constantly like, am I doing it right? Am I doing it right? You know. And of course, they'll tell you there's no right way to do it and you shouldn't strive, um, but we do. And um, But I, I kind of like, oh yeah, that's it. That's what I'm trying to do. And I would get there. So it's a doorway and um you know you, many of those people gave them up stopped doing psychedelics there was no point you know uh, as alan watts said once you get the message you can hang up the phone and uh and there's some truth to that but um there are i just think that uh we we, ju we just haven't begun to understand the mind and how these different kinds of experiences change consciousness no I just want to, you know, celebrate the fact that it made you a better meditator because I couldn't meditate at all. I was a zero, you know, before I actually knew what I was going for, right? I had, I just had no idea. I mean, I would try, you know, and and I would try, okay, what am I doing? Uh thinking about sex again. Okay, no, no, that's not <laughs> it. Uh what am I doing? But, you know, it, it actually gave me an understanding of, all right, all right, this is what it feels like. Yeah. And that was that was actually the only time probably Without that, I don't know if I ever would be able to. Yeah, I, I wouldn't, tr I wouldn't I would trust either. it. I wouldn't have the faith yeah. that there was actually a destination without right, tasting right. the destination. Like, what yeah. are you doing this practice for? Yeah. It seems like a lot of time and energy right. and devotion. Where are, that, where are we going? What, what, what's the yeah. point? What's the payoff here? Yeah. Like, and not without knowing and feeling like that there is a payoff, I don't know if you, you keep doing it. Well, most people give most it up. Most people don't. So one of the uh, one of the neuroscientists I, I interviewed was a man named Judd Brewer, Judson Brewer, uh, who um, studies meditation, doesn't study psychedelics. And he was the guy who looked at the first fMRI brain scans of 
people using psychedelics that uh, were done in England. And he, and he was doing scans of the brains of very experienced meditators. He'd put them in the fMRI and tell them to meditate. People with 10,000 hours of experience. And the brain scans matched up. The same parts of the brain were suppressed. Uh, not surprising in a way, because both involve over transcending the ego. But I talked to Brewer about it. He got very curious, and he actually went down to Hopkins and, and participated in one of Roland Griffith's studies and, and ingested psilocybin. And his, he was already an experienced meditator, but he thought someday we might use, when, it's, when they're legal, we might use psychedelics at the beginning of a meditation process mm. as part of you know, your, your um, uh, being admitted into the... Into, sure. the, into the world of meditation. And uh, that's an interesting idea. I mean, it sounds kind of outrageous now, but that may be the way you do it. Makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. I mean, I think very, on, from a pragmatic sense, I think that's, that's what got me on the path. You know, that's what allowed me to experience and explore everything from breath work to ecstatic dance, all of these things that I was curious about because when I could know where I was headed and then I could find it and find a tool right. that could get me there. Yeah then it's like oh and, all and right. again you have that you have that highway now in your brain and the more you exercise it the stronger it becomes oh, the yeah. wider it becomes i want to talk to you you wrote a couple pages about your 5 meo dmt experience yeah and that is a very very unique you know and i've i've explored and experienced a lot of the plant medicines particularly the plant medicines i haven't gone down the uh shulgin wormhole and experienced all the different ways and in, in, uh and all, all respect to that path i've stuck mostly with the plants but experienced most of them and, and obviously the this is a toad not necessarily a plant it's organic yeah it is <laughs> it is flora and fauna <laughs> based yes. um but it it is the most unique i would say and the dmt experience in general is and ayahuasca can give you that but the the five meo experience is to me one of the most unique experiences that is available in the pantheon just so radically different mm -hmm. than than the other ones what was your you know experience for those of you who haven't read your account yeah. and so 5meo dmt is the smoked venom of the sonoran desert toad just like absorb that what an amazing idea that i mean that that our species figured that one out yeah. <laughs> kudos to our yeah, species yeah for sure um it, uh, it's, it's also synthesized, but basically you harvest the venom by squeezing this gland on the toad, this particular toad. Toads are not hurt by this at all. You're, it's like milking them onto a sheet of glass and then uh, overnight the, uh, the venom crystallizes. It looks like brown sugar and then you smoke it, you know, vape or something. Um, I had an opportunity to do it. I didn't seek it out, but this, this uh, woman, this guide from Mexico was in town and uh, some friends and sources invited me to participate. I was really nervous about it, and I went to uh, which is the most sane, thank the you. most sane <laughs> approach to something <laughs> like that. And I, I talked to a friend who had had experience with it, a woman uh, neighbor, and uh, she she put her she put her hand on my arm. We were having lunch because she said, "This is the Everest of psychedelics," which only made me more frightened. <laughs> But she described a beautiful experience of being shot out of a rocket and then being installed in the in the firmament as a star and observing everything as a star. It's like, okay, so I did it. <laughs> My experience wasn't like hers though. Um, I had the rocket launch. Um, mm -hmm. It's a very, so even you, you take like a puff 
And even before you have exhaled, it's that fast, you are gone. Mm. You have no reference points at all. Dissolution of ego is only the beginning of it. It's the shattering, the, 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 the explosion of ego, yeah. but also of all fixed points of reference. There was not that other consciousness. Uh, even though I did register what was happening to me, not from a fixed point by any means, there was no matter. There was no time. There was no, all the things we used to organize experience were gone. And all I felt was this, this uh, horrible storm in my head, which was you know, not limited to my skull. It was everything that there was. It started in my head, but it was the whole universe was just moving and, and, and it was this punishing roar the whole time. And, um, and I did feel like I was strapped to the outside of a rocket and shuddering the whole time. I, I wasn't apparently, but I felt like I was shuddering. And I just, you know, it was the, I felt like I was in the middle of an atomic explosion. Um, and the best thing about the experience was it only lasted about 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although it was an eternity. And then as I started to come down, um, which was pretty quick, um, I suddenly like felt for the first time, oh my God, I have a body. I, I felt the floor there was matter again there was yes. time yes oh and, and and to watch reality reconsolidate i yeah. had this incredible experience of gratitude this was the happiest part of it not gratitude to be alive which was okay we've all felt gratitude to be alive gratitude that there was anything <laughs> that there is something rather than nothing as the philosophers would put it and so i ended up feeling like so happy I'd survived, so grateful for the very fact of existence. So that was the positive. Now, other people have different experiences on that drug. And I've since described this to people as I just have. And I get one of two reactions from people who are really experienced. One was, you didn't have enough. <laughs> <laughs> which i can't imagine yeah. doing okay more. that's one theory all right and we'll then the other was we'll you had too much one. yeah <laughs> but um i'm gonna propose a third yeah you had just the right, just amount. The right amount yeah because it's just gonna keep right me away amount. for all time <laughs> um so it was an interesting experience and i included it because it's important for people to understand that these experiences can be terrifying something good can come out of a terrifying experience but this one is so fast you don't bring back a lot of material the way you do with ayahuasca or, or a psilocybin trick you know which has so much narrative and imagery and specificity this was just this the whole time mm. so i don't think it'd be useful therapeutically for that reason um you know was i reset in any way i did have a kind of afterglow but that was the gratitude of having been you know plucked from the ocean when you were drowning yeah <laughs> which must feel pretty good too it's a really it's interesting to hear you describe it because it's one of the medicines that i have i don't have a a, a great amount of experience with i have a lot more experience with ayahuasca and mm -hmm. other forms of dmt um but i understand exactly what you're saying because it's an experience of everything and everything all at once yes and everything all at once is a lot and it's more than our minds are set up it's to bear. a lot it's we, because it's everything it's every cry it's every smile yeah. it's every hug it's every fight all it's every once. crash of a meteor it's every harmony yeah. it's everything all at once and that is that is an immense immense load it's also you know we're narrative we're storytelling creatures right and we need we turn experience into narrative to make sense of it and 
what do you need for narrative? You need a place, you need a person, and you need time. I had none of it. <laughs> yeah. So it was it it kind of defied all the tools we have for processing reality I, and I would, thwarted them I and frustrated agree. them. So anyway, yeah, it's not it's not where I would go again. Um, what was interesting to me is I got I had it administered by a by a shaman and and the experience was so overwhelming but it was a positive experience for me i was actually like going wow and laughing and going wow because it was so much more to feel all the things but then he asked do you want any more i was like no <laughs> like no what do you what do you, you mean do i want more like no way like this is good like yeah. thank you this is right. good that's for, for sure plenty <laughs> like the human being is not supposed to hold everything yeah we're differentiated right. for a reason but the recalibration for me of that to like just be able to to touch that and to touch like wow you can actually be a part and feel all of the things at the same time was really interesting and unique because i think that is the you know i always liken it to like at a point you know the the scientists say that we had a big bang right so that all of the universe was compressed into perhaps the size of a thumbnail yeah it was like that you know and it was like that and at that point at the size of a thumbnail there aren't mountains and trees and people no. and fights and all of the different things that we have and no, different colors of skin it's just pure possibility it's yeah. just a thumbnail of energy that explodes into the entirety of the universe but that thumbnail is homogenized right and it's just pure quantum potential and energy that is if you want and you're comfortable with the word that is god as god alone mm -hmm. without the differentiation of all matter and all spirit and all the things that you have but fuck that strong yeah. at that point because that thumbnail becomes the whole universe. Well, I felt, I likened it in the book, in fact, to um, what the world was before the Big Bang, um, which was this pure field of energy, right? Yeah. There wasn't even matter. It took this wave, this wrinkle in the waveform to create the imperfection that became matter. Mm -hmm. And this was pre-matter. Um, but you're right. It's just kind of takes us back to a place where we don't belong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a very interesting thing, and I think. But for me, it was a window on insanity. I, I really of, of losing control of your mind completely, and that's what was so frightening about it. I really felt like. Well, you thought you did lose your mind completely. I did lose my mind, and and the question was, I mean, I had some confidence I would regain it, but. Um, but I had that that feeling of what it must be like when yeah. your mind. Yeah, your, your book was not how to lose your mind completely. It was no. how to change your mind. Change, change. You know, so that was important that you focused on those things that you know allow you to retain some part of your mind because that's yeah. not that that's not the typical experience that you find with psilocybin. Maybe perhaps with a heroic dose of psilocybin, you can get a deep yeah. There are moments of kind of dissolution, but and, it's not the same. And there's I I had on ayahuasca a moment um, of kind of mental chaos where i couldn't resolve into images or story or anything it was just like too much going on mm -hmm. it was stormy um and it was a little like that but that that resolved pretty quickly yeah um so yeah i've but, had i've had my my scariest moment of what felt like insanity wasn't on the five meo it was actually on a snuffed uh seed pod called vilka and on this, it was the third time I did it. The first two times were rather enjoyable. The third time was not. What's enjoyable. the chemical in that case? Isn't it? So it's five meo, yeah. NN, and bufotenine. That's oh. like the triple, you know, yeah. combination that's just naturally occurring in this seed pod that's um, native to South America. Two different varietals, and the only thing my mind could latch onto was two words: Nintendo and pajamas. And I was like, 
that's all I got. Nintendo yeah. and pajamas. And that was scary because I like words. Yeah. Like words are a part of like. There's so many good there's ones. There's so many good ones. <laughs> and I was reduced to two very random words. And one Nintendo. was a trademark. Yeah. <laughs> Sega is so mad right now. They're like, this is bullshit. PlayStation's like, uh uh-uh. uh. We got we to gotta, we gotta outlaw this drug. It's telling people, it's guiding people towards Nintendo. Um, yeah. It's a, it's, and that's the unique thing. That was the third time doing it so different than the other two and that was the time where i really recognized like okay 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 like enough of the medicine for now like Mm -hmm. now is time to start integrating deeply these challenges that i've experienced in my life the medicine that i've done prior and there's been certainly periods where i've been like okay you know chill out you know the the period between these experiences is just as important i I mean i think your point about processing or integrating is so important and that was a real difference between the way people are using psychedelics with intention now and the way they were once used more as you know thrill seeking basically and adventuring and um and when kids take drugs they don't they don't sort of credit that there's that much meaning to it and in fact if you know you're out with your friends in your concert and somebody takes a little too much and they think they saw god your friends will discourage you from believing it they'll just tell you you had too much you know that was the mushroom speaking you know they'll they'll, they'll, they'll they won't ascribe any actual significance to the experience and that's a that's a shame because there is actual significance sure. it, they they are meaning making chemicals and meaning you know requires some interpretation and the other thing, I, I think one of the biggest pitfalls that I've seen is people who've been too deeply involved in the medicine, done it too frequently with mm-hmm. not enough, not the right set and setting, not the right intention, not the right integration, not the right pacing. Mm-hmm. They will, they can develop a certain type of mania, which can either manifest as paranoia. And you know, you can talk to Tim about this in the Zendo project. And I've since I've been in someone who's been talking about psychedelics for a while, I know that there's some times where I get calls. From people experiencing a variety mm-hmm. of different things and usually it falls into one of two categories one is a certain type of paranoia everybody's out to get me everything's recording and, right. and that and then you know that's the kind of the classic thing that you know anybody at zendo who's just the harm reduction arm that goes to the festivals mm-hmm. to help people do challenging psychedelic experiences but one of the other ones that's really tricky is the mania which becomes almost the amplification of the ego to the point where the ego decides that i am god and that's also it's very, one of the big paradoxes. also very scary yeah it's one of the big paradoxes of psychedelics is that they're ego dissolving experiences that have spawned some real egomaniacs <laughs> yeah and uh i mean timothy leary is is uh is a classic example and there is this kind of part of it is the exuberance that comes from feeling you've acquired some key to the universe some mm. key of understanding and you just want to tell the whole world about it um but there but it it is a it is an occupational hazard of these people who get in really deep i agree that there is a kind of mania that that um it's another thing to guard against yeah and to have the people around you that say okay yeah yeah you're god but so is everybody else (laughs) like everybody else is too so it's all good you know like i'm glad you're experiencing your divinity but don't let it take you down the path where you're the only one and it makes you better and that's the classic i mean how does the ego know itself it knows itself in relative position mm-hmm. right so the moment you start being putting anything in relative position i am the master i have the key i uh, as soon as you start doing that well you're not an ego dissolution you're an ego yeah. magnification that's right you know and so someone did like gently with love point that out like hey man yeah 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 
and so is everybody so it's all good and and i think just being able to help and encourage people but to have that awareness of kind of what's happening yeah. um, i think is important and that's why i really celebrate that even prior to legalization just respecting and understanding that people are doing these psychedelics and they're doing them at burning man they're doing them at sure. different concerts they're doing them in places like let's get some people boots on the ground with some sense who can just help guide people through by basically holding space and just providing the gentle reminders and having the training to help guide these experiences yeah, and having experiences some humility existing. before this mystery i mean you know yeah. it's it's you have insight but you don't you don't come out with a feeling you have some ultimate understanding you have all these hints and clues as to what's going on but you don't you, i don't i don't think at least i didn't come out with a clear picture oh this is how the universe works i had my mind open to weirder possibilities weirder metaphysics than i had before but i wasn't convinced that they were true um, you know there's a whole veracity issue i mean you 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 discover things and what is the status of it um one of the things a lot of people discover is that there's this transpersonal dimension of consciousness right that consciousness exists outside of our minds that brains perhaps don't produce it but tune it in it's a very common takeaway and i did have this experience of this kind of objective you know huxley would have called it the mind at large this perspective that allowed me to witness my own ego dissolution but I, 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 I can't say I was convinced that it, 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 uh, that that you know brains don't produce consciousness by that, or that consciousness exists in the universe. Maybe it does. I'm more open to the possibility than I ever was. But it's not a confirmation, at least to me. I mean, I don't know. Maybe there are people who, for whom it is a confirmation. Yeah, I, th I think so many things come as metaphor. Like, oh, I saw someone, and it, she had an alligator head, and eagle wings and she told me this special thing like i met oh, her okay yeah, yeah. <laughs> like maybe maybe that was a real being yeah. that said that or right. maybe that was just the way that or information needed to splash into your consciousness right. so that you would understand it so that it would make sense because if it was just a normal looking person that didn't have an alligator head you wouldn't maybe pay attention <laughs> you know like it's you have to have this kind yeah. of light-hearted sense about you where it's like okay yeah maybe there are uh you know therianthropes that are existing uh -huh. in the spiritual dimension and you right. can actually talk to a yeti or not yeah well know, that's like, the people on not. dmt have you know these, these very common shared experiences of you know machine elves or another you know that that many of them emerged from the experience convinced that that was another dimension and that they had a temporary access to another dimension and i know lots of people who believe that um i haven't had that experience um i haven't you know tried dmt regular dmt but it's very curious that people would have the exact same hallucination. Is that about suggestion? I mean, have we have we seen that across cultures that aren't listening to Terrence McKenna, mm -hmm. you know, on YouTube? Can we find such a person? Uh, <laughs> but all those there, it, it just raises tons of interesting questions. But I don't think they're settled by any means. Yeah, there. I feel like those things are the things that you have to just throw your hands up and be like, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I right. mean, and that's okay. Yeah. Is it produced by the mind, or is it at large, or is it yeah. part of the? It doesn't matter. Like, what mm. is the effect that it has on you? Like, right. did it make you feel more love? You know, did the alligator head wingling, you know, eagle winged person, 
did she give good advice or not good yeah, advice? Right. You know, yeah, like that's can I use really, this? Can I use yeah. this? Is this helpful for my life? Yeah. And I think no, that's I think where taking, the most important I mean, question you're is. suggesting taking a very pragmatic view to the information you get, which I think is right. I mean, will these metaphors or stories help me live my life in a in a in a good way? And um if they will, then they're true. You know, as William James said, yeah. well, there's no truth objectively. It's what works. And uh, I think that's the test for a lot of these insights. I agree. I think the only thing that psychedelics have helped me know, you know, and, and the only thing that's helped me know is that there's something beyond, mm -hmm. something beyond who I used to think I am. Mm -hmm. And that thing feels a lot like love, mm -hmm. but there's not a lot of good words for it. You know, yeah. consciousness, love, whatever. And feeling that and knowing that, that's something that I can't convince somebody of. Like, hey, man, you're actually love expressed. Yeah, <laughs> like, no, I know. That's a, that's a hard one to do. But if they ask me, like, are you sure? I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. sure, actually, because it's something I know. But I don't, please don't take my word for it. You know, like, I'm not trying to convince you. It's well, just, a fee it's something I know somatically. A lot of what you learn on psychedelics, you already know, but now you know it in a, yeah. in a very, uh, authoritative way and, and love is a great example i mean it's the classic psychedelic insight that the most important thing in the universe is love and that could go on a hallmark card it probably is on a hallmark card yeah but it's also true yeah so this line between banality uh and profundity is actually quite fine and um and that was a struggle writing about in in the book writing about psychedelic experience which can sound crazy or banal to other people but how do you how do you convey what it, you know how strongly it felt and i you know that was a that was a real struggle but i i realized though that we we def banalities are just things that are so familiar and 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 we defend against the profundity of that idea it's just too yeah. hard to think about every day um but there's an example and and so there's this quality to psychedelic experience um james called it the noetic quality of mystical experience which is the sense that the insights you have your discoveries are not mere opinions subjective ideas they're objectively true and that authority brought to a very common idea like love is really a great thing is a big part of what we get out of them and i think that's really important it's a good thing and it and it has a lot of therapeutic relevance because the people who are trying to change their lives in a very specific way let's say escape an addiction they have i talked to all these smokers who were, were in the psilocybin trial and they would have very banal insights like yeah, it's really stupid to kill yourself smoking. There's so many amazing things to do and see in the world. This is what a woman literally told me. And she had that thought at the height of a psilocybin trip, and now it is like an article of faith she actually can live by. And it never had been that, even though I'm sure she thought it. So there are things we know at one level, and it's superficial, and we and we just say it's relative, relativistic or you know, our, our personal belief. And then there are things that become objectively true. And I think by destroying the subject-object duality, that's, that's why that happens. There's no subjectivity or there's everything's objective or everything's subjective. So uh, it, it just gives a kind of sturdiness to those kind of insights that's 
in a world valuable where, in a world where everything is fluid yeah and time changes everything and like i was saying earlier you wake up a different person every day and everything seems in flux oh i don't i'm searching for who i am well good luck you're going to be the one searching for who you are because as you're searching you're changing who you are right. because you're searching and that's yeah. actually like everything you can't grab on anything but to have real foundational bedrock principles that you know it just gives you like some framework yeah. that you can start to navigate a little bit yeah a couple fixed points a couple fixed yeah. points and that's helpful and and if you're open to receiving that like one of the funny one of the funny experiences was you know i follow hamilton morris's work mm -hmm. a little bit yeah i do too and you know he's very much into the neurochemistry of this and very much into kind of what's going on and and he describes it impeccably you know what's happening in the brain when you do a boga or do something but the the funny experience was when he did the the toad he smoked the toad of 5-meo and he's just lying on the bank of the riverbank just going love love <laughs> love love and it's it's funny to talk to him about it he's like yeah i don't know you know he's like i don't know i don't know man i mean you know that's just one of those points where he's just like ah well i don't know about that but it happened and it was it was real for a while and yeah uh, and, that, and but that's that's the beauty of it you know? it is and it's also you know whether you'd say i don't know it was the drug i don't know it was my experience if you have a guide a really good guide um someone like mary Casamono at the hopkins who's like a brilliant guide and for her it's all about love they reinforce that they they pick out things in your experience and reinforce it and allow you to really carry that forward yeah. into your life and that, that's that's why the integration is so important integration in the guidance yeah. you know two of the key key components to this so uh for people listening who are you know interested in helping the movement helping the cause you know obviously there's the people pushing the science for but where do you where do you think that people who want to be called to service and believe in this the value of psychedelic medicine and the value of these experiences you know what do you what do you tell those people who want to help well, it depends on what you can bring to the table. I mean, if you've got the resources, the, the researchers need money. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's no federal money in this research. It's all been privately funded. And uh, a little goes a long way. I mean, there, there are really interesting studies that are being done for, there's one in San Francisco, and I think it was funded for $250,000. And, um, and, you know, it's a really interesting, important study. Um, MAPS needs always needs money. MAPS is the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. They're doing the MDMA work mostly, um, but they've been pushing this agenda for a very, sure. you know since the '80s, and and they do they do good work. Hefter Institute is another one that specializes in. They're they're very obscure group, but they're they're really funding a lot of the early stage psilocybin research. So that's really important. Um, you know. There's so much misinformation and so much uh, fear and urban legends is just talking about it to people. And, and I think coming out of the closet, I mean, I really do think the more people talk about their experiences as a normal part of life and not cloak them in shame or, um, uh, or, or you know, extravagant, I've you know, I've solved the problem of the universe ways, but just kind of, you know, in the same way, the 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 movement for for gay rights got so much when normal people talked about the fact that they were gay, um, it it suddenly became easier for people to yeah. imagine a world where gays could have right to marriage or or, or you know 
quality of employment, all these kind of things. And so we've been closeted on this issue. And and one of the, I, I've realized in my own, you know, it was at some reputational risk that I wrote a book talking about my psychedelic experience. I was breaking the law. Um, there was a legal risk too. Um, but the fact that I did it in a kind of um, everyday way without, you know, hyping up the adventure or anything, I, I think, people have responded in kind and they share their stories with me. And I often ask audiences now, and I'm speaking to large audiences and like universities and not just psychonauts by any means. I'll often ask them at the beginning, I I say everybody should close their eyes because I don't want anyone to feel uncomfortable. And, but raise your hand if you've had a psychedelic experience. And it's like, it's well over half, Mm -hmm. like anywhere I go. Mm -hmm. Now those are people selected to come hear me, obviously. So (laughs) they have some selection bias. But there is, um, so I, I do think that's important is, is people willing to come out of their closet and say what this did for them or, or even, I mean, I've had the, uh, on book tour, just the most amazing experiences where journalists, and I, I remember, I'm thinking of a guy in London now who was like, he must've been 70 and he was like the lead culture writer for the Times of London. And, and uh, I'm starting to talk and he, he turns off his tape recorder and says, can I tell you a story? You know, but he wanted the tape recorder off, and he told me about a very important trip that had changed his life when he was young. That he and he said, "I haven't told anyone. I have, my wife has never even heard about this." And so there has been a lot of shame or, or something, or that you won't be taken seriously. And so I think having that conversation helps um, too in terms of normalizing this. I agree, and I think now you'll find, as you found, you know, anticipating more resistance than there was. Yeah. And as the people come out, surprise. they're going to anticipate more resistance than there and actually is. And they'll be is. surprised. And they'll yeah. be surprised. I mean, I remember eight years ago, nine years ago, when I was talking about ayahuasca, you know, people would just litter my social media posts with things like, druggy, go take some fucking drugs, loser, yeah. you know, all of these things. And now I can talk about psychedelics, and I get like zero, or maybe one out of every yeah. 20 posts, somebody will say something. But it's... It's a different time now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Really, We're in a different cultural moment. It really is, I think. Well, the important. drug war is losing gas without mm-hmm. question. And, uh, you know, what the, the work with cannabis has, has opened a space that people are reconsidering drugs and starting to make distinctions among drugs. I mean, the, yeah. it's the, the lumping of all drugs under this, you know, drugs of abuse, you know, Schedule One. I mean, they're, they're really different and they're all tools and they can be misused and they can be used. And, um, and so a saner conversation begins with being particular about things uh, and not lumping everything together. Because I still run into that. People said, and I, you know, there was an oncologist who, uh, who wouldn't participate in one of the, wouldn't send any of his patients to one of the cancer anxiety trials. I won't say which university. And he was like, I'm not going to let them give crack to my patients, right? This is a medical doctor, you know, and uh, a drug is a drug. And um, even though, of course, the whole practice of oncology depends on very specifically using certain yeah. drugs in certain ways. Sure. Um, so there's still a lot of ignorance out there and, uh, and a lot of confusion. And that's one of the reasons I wrote the book is to, you know, give people some good information that wasn't written from a place of, I, I mean, I wasn't convinced of the value when I started. I, I was very reluctant as a psychonaut and very skeptical as a journalist. And um, uh most books on psychedelics have been written from inside the the bubble of people who already know and care and that's not who i was and um so i think that 
um, having a conversation that is, um, you know, informed, and, uh, avoids irrational exuberance, uh, even though there certainly are moments of that in my book, um, uh, is, uh, is the way to begin to um, make this a regular part of our lives instead of this, you know, um, exotic, illegal, uh, whatever it is. Whatever it has been. <laughs> whatever it has been, yeah. But it's changing. And, and you know, we're reinventing psychedelics, right? I mean, one of, one of my goals in the book was to rescue psychedelics from its 60s image and association. Sure. And, you know, there are a lot of positive things happened in the 60s due to psychedelics. I'm not, you know, it did help fuel the anti-war movement. And I think the anti-war movement is basically a good thing. But, um, but a lot of bad things happened too and that, that killed the research and um, set us back. And there was a lot of thought given to, do I use the word psychedelic or another word, hallucinogen or entheogen is a common, you know, mm-hmm. as you know, is used to suggest it's the God within. Um, and I thought, well, psychedelic is the right word, mind yeah. manifesting. Um, so, and it's not a 60s word. It was a 50s word, actually. Um, it was coined by Humphrey Osmond in 56 or 57. So let's see if we can just rescue that word. So yeah. I do use it. and, um, and Clean and it I, off of all the barnac- yeah, barnacles right. exactly. that have been attached to it. Yeah, get down to good wood. Uh, yeah, know? exactly. Sand it. Um, so anyway, there's tons of work to be done. No um, I'm just doing my little piece of it. But you're doing a piece too by talking about this on the air and talking about your own experience. So only I'll do our best. And I uh, yeah. just once again want to share my gratitude for what you've done because it's, uh, it's been huge. Oh, thank you very much. And thank you so much for coming on and and chatting about this with me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Anything else you want to let people know about? Any other works you have or blogs or sites or socials or anything that uh, people can follow Uh, along? Well, I do have a website with a lot of resources on it about psychedelics. Look, the thing that um, has happened to me in the years since this book was first published last May uh, has been, and this has been disturbing, is the number of people who have written me asking for referrals. Mm. And and the scope, the scale of the suffering that I've been introduced to in this work. Someone asked me recently, you know, so how's it going from being the food guy to the psychedelic guy? And I said, yeah, the food guy is a lot easier. You know, you go to it, <laughs> you go to a fancy restaurant and they send out a, a free dessert. You know, it's great. Um, and people might ask you, should I eat this? Should I, you know, oh, yeah. But but here it's getting these these heartbreaking notes and emails and calls. People find my phone number and just call me and say. My son has been suicidal for the last 10 years or my my mother is an alcoholic or my my father's dying and I, and I, I read your book and I really think this could be helpful. And there's really nothing I can do um, safely. I can't I can't refer them to underground guides. It's just too dangerous for the guides. Um, if they have an indication that goes with a trial I know about, I've sent, for example, an alcoholic who wrote me to NYU where there, mm-hmm. where there's a trial. Hopefully he'll get into it. But the demand is huge and the supply is tiny. And um, so what I did instead was put a lot of resources on my website, which is michaelpollan.com. There's a resource, psychedelic resources page. And, it, and it, it's how to get in touch with the researchers and, and, um, and how to find some good information if you're looking for an underground guide. Um, uh, and telling people about ketamine too. I mean, ketamine yeah, is illegal, sure. uh, sort of a psychedelic. People have psychedelic experiences on it, and that is legally available to people. And and so for the depressed people who write, I, I tell them about that. So some people who are listening might find that that website useful. 
Yeah, I have the same the same line of inquiry, and it's you know, this kind you. of message like, hang tight. <laughs> you know, yeah. there's we're, we're, this is coming. And it may this not be that through. far. It may, it may not be, be that like far away. Five expanded, years. And expanded access may happen even sooner. Yeah, you, know, you start talking to maps, and but what do you do in the meantime? Well, ketamine is interesting for the indications that it's yeah. valuable, and you for. can travel, and, and you can travel, and you could go to the traditional route as I have. Although people should be careful, as you know, there's a that. lot of uh, fake shamans out there more than there are probably real shamans and so that's also something you have to be very mindful of recommending and there's a limited supply of that but then there's other things like sensory deprivation floating you know which right that's gonna be a good that'll be a good start yeah and that's really coming back i see those places everywhere i haven't tried that yet yeah Yeah, you should you should because that's a really good referral point to be like i know i know there's nothing i can really tell you i know there's a limited supply in peru and there's only a couple places i know and trust and i know it's prohibitive cost prohibitive but at least go float you know like go float go go in that water where you lose the sense of time and space and your body feels like you're back in the womb like go go try that you know like hold on and then hopefully the science will push these things forward and we'll be able to offer these tools that have been so valuable to us to the world yeah it won't be long won't be long thank you so much thank you you, thank you everybody peace I hope you guys enjoyed diving deep with Michael Pollan. He's got the paperback release of How to Change Your Mind coming up in May, but you can get it now on Audible or in hardcover. It's a book that's worth having, and that hardcover is just going to allow you to share it with all the people who could benefit from this message. Also, make sure to check out the previous episode with Joe Rogan, and if you're listening to this, right when it comes out, we have the semi-annual sale coming up at Onnit. But anytime you listen to this, go to onnit.com slash Aubrey and check out all the cool shit we have to offer. And of course, sign up to my newsletter, leave a review, and follow me on all the socials at Aubrey Marcus. Thanks so much, fam. I'll see you next week.